Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, we speak with the creator of the Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, answering listener questions and spending a fair amount of time talking about Edward Curtis and how Jefferson would have reacted to his work. Edward S. Curtis was the photographer who produced some of the most amazing, passionate, and compelling images of Native Americans at the beginning of the 20th century for his 20-volume work, The North American Indian. And our thought was that Jefferson would have given anything to have been able to send on the Lewis and Clark expedition and others a photographer who could capture the life ways and the physical accoutrements and to a certain extent was able to see into the personalities of the native peoples he encountered. We recognize Mr. Jack Preston, a 94-year-old gardener who wrote a poem and shared it with us. All that and much more on this week's edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, could you explain what the Age of Enlightenment was, when it occurred, and why it was so important to thinkers such as yourself? Well, there was the classical world, of course, and then followed by the Dark Ages, which lasted from around 400 A.D. until around 1450 or 1500. Then came the Renaissance, which literally means rebirth, a rebirth of learning, a reconnection with the classical world, particularly the Roman world. The scientific revolution soon followed. This is where Copernicus and Galileo showed us that the Earth is not the center of the universe. In fact, the center of our solar system, at least, is the sun. They also began to show us that the world was not finite, but infinite in scope. And with the scientific revolution came a desire to use reason and what's called ratiocination, the reasoning principle, to look at all phenomena. And the Enlightenment believed in the unlimited freedom of the human mind. Diderot said we should challenge absolutely every received idea, whether they were favorite ideas or not, that no received idea should stand without scrutiny by people armed with reason as our only oracle. This was the age of the encyclopedia and almanacs when knowledge was gathered into small spaces within the covers of a book or a set of books with an attempt to embrace all of human knowledge and to disseminate it to people who were not experts but who were well-educated and literate. And the Enlightenment was also a time of experimentation in government to replace the systems of tyranny and autocracy and aristocracy with new governments based upon the inherent rights of humankind, using social compact and the consent of the governed. All of these elements gathered together to form what later became known as the Enlightenment. It wasn't called that at the time. That's a 19th century term for a 17th and 18th century phenomenon. But the world that I grew up in was the world of the Enlightenment, and I was extremely fortunate at the College of William and Mary in having as my major professor and mentor a man named William Small, who was a member of the British and Scottish Enlightenment and who, who put into my hands the texts of Voltaire Dr. Johnson, Diderot, Adam Smith, and Bolingbroke, and so on. And those texts became the foundation of all of my later work. The ideas of individual liberty and religious tolerance 
figured greatly in Enlightenment thinking, correct? They certainly did. John Locke wrote an essay on tolerance. We went farther in the American Enlightenment. We said tolerance is not adequate. Tolerance is the minimal standard. In other words, my private beliefs are no business of the state, nor are yours, and we should have a principle of absolute neutrality by government with respect to people's religious sensibilities. This was a very central theme of the Enlightenment, and individual rights were also. This is the age of the social compact, and this actually goes far back into the classical world, but it had been forgotten, because in the medieval world, it was thought that God granted us governments and gave us kings and, and, and gave us such rights as we enjoyed, but that's not true at all. We're born with rights. Rights are inherent in what it is to be human, and governments are formed by free men using their reason and good sense to produce the government that can best suit their needs. So all of that is packaged under the title of enlightenment, and I feel deeply fortunate not only to have lived through that time and learned from it, but to have been able to represent it in the new world. Mr. Jefferson, how strongly do you believe that citizens of my time should adhere to these principles? Oh my, I would think that it would be a mistake ever uh, to erode our commitment to enlightenment principles, due process, trial by jury, not being forced to incriminate oneself in a court of law, the capacity of rational beings to produce a government of their own choice, uh, the consent of the governed, a belief that progress is inevitable and that science and, and the patient gathering of facts will make the world a better place and what we like to call ameliorate the condition of mankind. I hope you will never abandon your commitment to those principles. Thank you so very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are welcome, sir. Good day, citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with President Thomas Jefferson. This week, however, our conversation will be with the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, the award-winning humanities scholar and author, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. I'm your host, David Swenson, and Clay, as always, it's so very good to talk to you, sir. It is great to be here with you, David, the semi-permanent guest host of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I bring you greetings from my field trips on the Lewis and Clark Trail of, of Jefferson Hour listeners and fans. It is such a pleasure to meet people who are listeners to the Jefferson Hour. Uh, I find out wonderful stories about where they listen, why they listen, how long they've listened, what they like or don't like. Uh, then I can put faces to the audience. Uh, it's hard to envision who's listening out there, but when I meet these people, it gives me great joy. I was hoping this week we could begin our conversation with a bit of housekeeping. Would that be all right, sir? Of course. There are a number of folks who have sent questions in. One about an upcoming Chicago appearance with John Williams. This is a program I do every year with my dear friend John Williams of WGN Radio in Chicago. I think we've been working together for more than 20 years, uh, once or twice or three times per annum. He's a wonderful interviewer. He has a daily, really intelligent 
call-in talk show on WGN Chicago. And so this one is planned for Saturday, October 30th uh, at 10 a.m. in Chicago, in a suburb of Chicago. You must have tickets, and they can be had by contacting WGN Radio in Chicago. And uh, we usually have 900 or 1,000 people in attendance. And and this year, the program will be about Thomas Jefferson and where things stand in American democracy. So I urge everyone in the Chicago area who's interested to come. You know, we we do a kind of an autograph signing afterwards, and people line up by the scores, sometimes hundreds, and they get to the front, and I'm ready to shake their hand. And then they say, John, we love your show, but when you talked about... uh, uh, the, the Chicago World's Fair, I think you missed something. And so they're not there to see me. They're there to meet their hero, John Williams, who's just a, a superb man. Yeah, I've, I've heard a couple of those programs, and they're delightful. If you're interested in more specific information, you can always go to jeffersonhour.com. We also got a, a letter from Lynn Gore. Uh, she says, how do I go about purchasing a book on your website? I'd like to buy one about the one about repairing America. Uh, I have a friend who is a former legislative leader named Lynn Kessler of the Washington State House of Representatives. She worked so hard on civility and was great about working across the aisle and respecting all others, regardless of party affiliation. I think she would appreciate your point of view and what you have to say in your book. I'd like to purchase it for her. Thank you, Lynn. I have a copy right in front of me. Be glad to sign it for her. All you need to do is go to jeffersonhour.com and write us a letter on the email that is provided there. Tell us what you want, how I should sign it, and then our staff, small though it is, will immediately get that book out to you and you can arrange for PayPal or, or some form of, of payment for it. And so it's the simplest thing in the world. And anybody else who wants to read that book, Repairing Jefferson's America, or my newest book, uh, The Language of Cottonwoods, Essays on the Future of North Dakota, or for that matter, any other of the books that I have written, need only go to jeffersonhour.com and make your wishes known, and we will take care of it. I have another one about repairing Jefferson's America. This one's from Glenn Harris, and he says, we have not heard any recent updates on how the legislative initiative is progressing. Maybe you could explain to people what, what that is. We need a few more states. I think we're up to 15, plus the United States Congress. So Michael Kandelwar, our, our, our great friend from Norfolk, uh, made it possible for us to give a copy to every member of the Congress of the United States. That's 535 copies. It was something of a logistical challenge, but we got it done. And I'm hoping sometime in, in maybe the 24th century to hear back from some of those legislators. Uh, but we've had 15 states... Colorado and California and Texas and others, um, and we want all of them. It would be my dream to get a copy of this book into the hands of every legislator in the country, or if you prefer your city council or your county government or your school board, we'd be happy to do that too. I wrote the book a couple of years ago. It was published in the year 2021. It's a guide to repairing the country one person at a time or one legislature at a time. The idea is that Jefferson is not faring particularly well in biographical circles because of slavery and Sally Hemings and Native Americans, etc. But his ideas, his Jeffersonian ideas that humans are rational beings who can see the world through books, who can argue through civility, uh, who can work by majority rule, who base their decisions on science, not superstition, who try to live with beauty 
in every way around them uh, who are uh, un unendingly generous and sympathetic towards their friends in good times and in bad, etc. Those Jeffersonian qualities, also, by the way, the qualities of the Enlightenment, uh, I think are what we most need as we try to repair this broken fabric of the American Republic. And so the book is about how each one of us can become more Jeffersonian and then um, ex exemplify that set of Jeffersonian values in the world around us, however small or large it might be. And so my dream has been to put one into the hands of every legislator in the country. We make them available at cost, and then the rest is just a matter of getting them shipped uh, to the, the proper legislative body. So I'd like to I'd like to finish it off, if we possibly can. Uh, I do honestly believe that the country is in greater danger in the late summer of 2021 than it has been at any point in my lifetime. The paralysis, the polarization, the uh, ad hominem attacks. I worry about whether my daughter and her daughter uh, will be able to live in a real republic. And so the book Repairing Jefferson's America is my small attempt to counter that by, by saying we probably can't fix the whole thing at once, but I can fix myself perhaps, and you, David Swenson, can fix yourself perhaps and others. And by doing so, as Jefferson pointed out, we create a small um, ameliorative ripple effect that, that could wind up creating a movement. You know, I think often of uh, all you've taught me about Jefferson and, and his ability to command attention, as you you said often, he wasn't a public speaker, was not one of these bombastic, loud voices that gains everybody's attention through uh, volume, but he did gain attention from people through his wisdom and his quiet presentations. Can you talk about that? Jefferson was a shy man, even a private and sometimes a secretive one. So far as we can tell, he didn't have the usual sort of political ego that you associate with someone like Lyndon Johnson, say, or even Alexander Hamilton. He was meek in his public presence, and this puzzled people. When he gave his first inaugural address on March 4th, 1801, he mumbled, and nobody could really hear what it was that he was trying to say. He preferred to write private letters uh, rather than speak publicly. He said he could not in public raise his voice above the level of a whisper. And so here is a person who's not really suited to the work of a political career. He didn't really have the skills, the chops, or even the ambition or the drive. But what he did have was a vision of this country. And that vision was derived from the principles of the Enlightenment, and he learned those principles relatively early in his life, between the ages of about 15 and 25, because he was such a omnivore as a reader. And he read 12, 14, 15 hours per day for much of those years and knew seven languages, three ancient and four modern, and made it his business to know what there was to know about the great subjects that were available to him in his time and using that, that foundation, he then made a series of pronouncements, but they were often muted and written in state papers or private letters uh, or, say, his inaugural addresses, rather than from the stump, as, as we would perhaps expect today. You know, he never made a public appearance 
um, as president of the United States that required him to give a speech, except his two inaugural addresses. He never left Washington to, to tour the country. He didn't go to a rally somewhere and speak from the, from the podium. Uh, that wasn't the style of that period in American history, and it certainly wasn't the style of Thomas Jefferson. So what he believed was that he spoke the truth, that what he said represented the great, even vast majority of the American people, that by articulating the aspirations of a free people, he was setting a bar that would, that would challenge all of us to live up to it. He never had any doubts about the wisdom of his approach. Uh, he believed that the Federalist approach, the other way, the other party, uh, represented a very strong, powerful, and loud minority, but that the vast majority of the American people wanted a kind of a simpler nation, more lightly governed, more locally governed, and they wanted to live their lives as much as possible without any connection to a formal polity, to a formal government. And, and of course, he believed that farming, that the agrarian vision was the right one for this republic. And so all of those represent Jefferson's core values. And he had a prose style that was uh, relatively perfect and, you know, compared to almost anybody else except perhaps Abraham Lincoln. Jefferson emerges as the finest writer of all of the presidents of the United States. And so it was his pen. Think of Jefferson quietly in a room by himself with the English language, surrounded by his books, with exquisite paper, uh, quill pens, fine ink, uh, sitting back and, and, and gazing out the window at his garden and formulating the principles of a free people. It's a lovely picture, and, and with the asterisk that I, I'm now insisting upon in all that I do and say, we must remember that this was partly made possible by enslaved laborers who were doing the work at Monticello. But even so, Jefferson used the time that he had exquisitely, and he helped to create the American dream. If you eliminate Thomas Jefferson from our national memory, from our understanding of who we are and what we stand for and what we aim towards as a people, you cannot really make sense of America. Jefferson must be at the center of any articulation of the American dream. Very good, sir. We need to take a short break. When we return, I have some questions from listeners for you, sir, if that would be all right. That sounds excellent. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. This week, we're answering listener questions. And Clay, welcome back. It's great to be back. I've had the really extraordinary summer working in the cultural tours, first on the Lewis and Clark Trail, and then a new one on the Salmon River, the River of No Return, which turned out to be spectacular, or as Mr. Jefferson would say, sublime. And now I'm working on this very large exhibit for the Theodore Roosevelt Center at Dickinson State University on Edward S. Curtis and Theodore Roosevelt. Edward S. Curtis, the great photographer of Native Americans, who also, by the way, as you well know, recorded between eight and 10,000 cylinder recordings of Native American song, story, vocabulary, etc., between 1905 and 1930. And his photographs, everyone has seen them, whether you recognize his name or not, are some of the greatest images ever made of Indian country and Native Americans. And Roosevelt knew him and was his friend and patron. And so I'm just wrapping up this gigantic exhibit on Theodore Roosevelt and Edward S. Curtis. And I have to say, David, it makes me think of you every day because I know that some of the work that you do that's not related to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, and that's most of your work, has a great deal to do with Native American music and song and oral traditions. Curtis really was one of the main figures in capturing Native American memory at a time when it was widely held that Indians were a vanishing people. They did not vanish, of course, but there was a widespread belief that they would, that they would either be so fully assimilated that they would cease to be Native American in any meaningful sense, or that they would simply disappear from the face of the earth because they couldn't absorb modernity. Neither one of those things happened. They are very much alive and in, in, in many instances in a state of cultural recovery. Curtis is a fascinating story. I, I'm certain you could recommend a book to people. The best one-volume study I have in my hand, actually, it's called Short Nights of the Shadow Catcher, The Epic Life and Immortal Photographs of Edward Curtis written by New York Times columnist and reporter Timothy Egan. That's the best one-volume introduction. I have about 40 books sitting here, uh, some of them with just <laughs> world-class reproductions of Curtis's images. And, and in this exhibit, I'm doing something that I don't think has ever been done before. I'm, I'm, I'm having one wall dedicated entirely to the Great Plains. So he's normally known for the Southwest and the Northwest, but he had a great deal of of interest in uh, the Crow, the Absaroka in Montana, the Hidatsa, the Mandan, the Arikara in North Dakota, and of course the Lakota. And those images are not as well known, not as widely reproduced as some of the, the ones in Canyon de Chez or in Apache country, but they're beautiful. And there's one in particular called the Eagle Catcher, uh, which shows a Hidatsa man holding up a buffalo skull as he awaits his moment as an eagle catcher on a bluff, which I think was photographed in the Kildare Mountains of North Dakota. And it's it's a magnificent photograph. And I really wanted the people who come to see this exhibit over the next couple of years to see that the Dakotas were central in Curtis's life and that they deserve a larger place in uh, exhibitions of his photographs than they have, have previously had. Absolutely. Jefferson's head would explode with uh, the knowledge of what Curtis collected. You know, he is, as you say, mostly known for his stunning photographs of Native peoples, but 
the fact that he did as much recording as he did. And writing, yeah. Yeah, puts him in context with Frances Densmore, one of my heroes, and all of the recording of Native peoples that she did. And you have a huge project that's just beginning on, on that subject also, cylinder recordings recorded on the Great Plains around the same time. I think Jefferson would have been not just ecstatic, but stunned by what Curtis was able to do. You know, Lewis and Clark did not take an illustrator. Lewis lamented that when they were at the Great Falls. There are some illustrations that Clark did or Lewis did, some sort of squigglings and some marginalia and some doodlings, but they don't amount to much more than that. If they had taken an illustrator, we would have a very different picture, I think, of the Lewis and Clark story. Lewis lamented this, but this was a shakedown cruise in dangerous country, and he needed all the muscle that he could possibly get for this. But later, a generation later, George Catlin came from Connecticut, and Carl Bodmer came from Switzerland, and their images of the Upper Missouri are amongst the best ever made, but they're paintings, and even though Carl Bodmer attempted to paint as if they were photographs, photography didn't exist yet, but the idea was get the most absolutely accurate detail of every porcupine quill, every bead, every part of a moccasin, every piece of fringe, every accoutrement, uh, uh, whatever the, the visage was of the native person, how he or she painted their face or body. He was trying to get a pictorial representation of who they were because it wasn't about art. It was about illustration. So that was in the mid-19th century. And then along comes Edward S. Curtis around 1905 when photography has fully entered its classical phase. The equipment is great, heavy, but reliable. He's using dry glass plates. And he traveled all over the American West to try to get it all down before it disappeared culturally. Jefferson, if he saw this, would have gushed with pure joy and admiration. And, and not only did Curtis capture these lifeways, these traditions on paper through his ethnography, in audio through these cylinder discs, but also took film footage and made the first documentary film about Native Americans called In the Land of the Headhunters. So he was using multimedia, if I can use that term, to get as much ethnography in every possible way as he could. And this is precisely what Jefferson would have wanted. In fact, Curtis took down vocabularies, and those vocabularies have proved to be very important. They're in the, the massive 20-volume set, The North American Indian, which he himself produced with the help of Roosevelt and J.P. Morgan. So this is what we wish there had been technology in place for in, 19, in 1805, but it, it just wasn't possible until much later after Jefferson's death. It's an incredible story, and uh, if it is a subject of interest to you, Long Nights of the Shadow Catcher is the book you have recommended, and I, I would agree. It's a great book. And I also have to personally just thank you for uh, sort of letting me be on the periphery of all of this and, and getting to hear some of the recordings he did. They, they're phenomenal. I sent you, via Indiana University, the, the raw recordings and you're remastering a few for our big symposium at the Theodore Roosevelt Center in Dickinson at the end of September, but we'll have all of them eventually on our kiosks there. But when you, when you push play and you hear that kind of scratchy, distant sound of Native American voices and song and drums, you just can't even believe that we had technology 
1910 to capture that music. There's an eeriness to it. Of course, I can't understand any of it except from a sort of aesthetic point of view, but not for its significance, although they're well-labeled. He he did his work, and he sometimes even transcribes songs using musical notation in the 20 volumes of the North American Indian. But here's what's interesting to me about your connect with it. In volume 5 of the North American Indian, which is the Hidatsa, the Mandan, and the Arikara, he has a photograph of scattered corn. This would have been taken 1908, maybe, in... North Dakota, at the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation. And scattered corn is a name that that a number of women may have held, but if this is the scattered corn, uh, she's the one whose songs you have had a connection to. Yeah, that is a long story. You've recorded a young uh, Native American woman who who sang a song that you recognized from your own work with Frances Densmore, Scattered Corn, was a musician, among other things, and late in her life she was recorded Uh, She was old enough that she might have arguably been around when Lewis and Clark passed through in 1804 or 1806. Even if she wasn't, this connects us so closely to the opening of the American West, beginning with the Lewis and Clark expedition, and to think that these ingenious Mandan, as Thomas Jefferson called them, and Hidatsa were corn growers. They had a number of varieties of corn. They were master farmers. They farmed down in the bottomlands right along the Missouri River, which flooded every year, just enough to give them great new nutrition. And they built these scaffolds in the cornfields, and and young women, particularly belonging to corn clans and other agricultural clans, would climb up on these scaffolds and sing to the corn, to sing to the corn to grow, to sing to the corn to protect it from predation, to sing to the corn in gratitude for what corn could bring to them and their trade network by way of these huge storage facilities that they built underground at their Earth Lodge villages. When I hear that story, I am automatically just drawn into it and think, what kind of a culture was it that produced these songs to plants? And they didn't do it the way you and I might do it for fun. They did it because they believed that it mattered, that if you sing to the corn... The corn will be glad. We cared for our corn as if it were a child, is the line. It's just so lovely, so lovely. So so anyway, Curtis is endlessly amazing. The North American Indian, by the way, the entire project is online at Northwestern University, free. You can capture and download the photographs and read the ethnography and look at the music, and you can go, if you wish, to Volume 5 and see Scattered Corn right there, photographed by none other than Edward S. Curtis, around 1908 on the plains of North Dakota. Jefferson would be like, give me more, give me more. I can't imagine how astounded he would be were he able to see all of this. But this leads me into another listener letter. It comes from John Preston, who is a 94-year-old gardener. He writes, every time I join the Jefferson Hour broadcasts, I become a mentally responding participant. During my fairly recent discovery of the three of you, Jefferson included, I have composed various thoughts to you. After listening to gardening, I have set myself to composing a jumble of thoughts. I will start from the show 1450 companionable gardening program with a poem. Oh, my. Now at 94, 
I have let nature go ahead with its autonomous transformation of my garden. I think you can relate to that. I can relate to that. And then he includes a very long poem, which we really don't have time to read the whole thing, but it's great. And he, uh, the, the first verse reads, Garden, I thought that all of you had gone away, neglected by this aged porch gardener. You all, purple parasol asters, gold star rutabecchia and your buddies, departed, your roots seized, invaded by your controlling neighbors, clumps of sedum, you are suffocating under grass. Isn't that great? What a guy. Thank you so much, John. Uh, wonderful. What, what, a, what a lovely affirmation. You know, gardening was so central to Jefferson's happiness. He was growing for the table to store food, and he had a very large number of people to feed, his, his immediate family, guests who uh, really inundated Monticello between 1809 and 1826, and then, of course, his enslaved workers who had to be fed too. This was a huge undertaking, but for Jefferson, the utilitarian was less interesting than the joy. The joy was to go out there in the cool of the evening and see what's growing, what's red, what's green, what's yellow, what's blooming, what failed this year. Jefferson was fascinated by the idea that nature with a capital N produced bounty. It produced the wherewithal for humans to thrive on earth if they worked at it and they were modest in their expectations that the farmer gardener was for Jefferson the central citizen. He had in mind a nation of farmer citizens, perhaps, and he believed that as long as that was central to us, we would be free and happy and independent. And once we started to crowd into cities or to abstract ourselves from nature with a capital N, uh, we would be less happy and less virtuous and we would govern ourselves less well. The more time you spend with your hands in the soil, even if it's on your porch with a five-gallon pot and a tomato, the more you connect to the deeper dynamics of the world and feel in some little sense independent when you eat that tomato or roast that ear of corn. So I think Jefferson was right, and I think this is something that we've forgotten. You know, I, was, I walked over the weekend, David, 12 miles. I'm getting ready for a really insane hike at Mount Whitney. So I walked from Fort Lincoln home, distance of about 12 miles, and here's what I discovered. We live in unspeakable noise. I, I was listening to a, a book, Charles Dickens' uh, novel, uh, with my little earbuds, and walking along hour after hour, and it was almost impossible, even at a large volume, to hear this recording because vehicles went by, many of them with no muffler or inadequate mufflers, roaring around. The industrial noise that we put up with every single day of our lives that we don't even know is out there, but which is disturbing our tranquility and disrupting our capacity to think, that's everywhere now. Even when I'm out on the Little Missouri River, I can hear airplanes going overhead and sometimes the, the pop, pop, pop of, of um, oil field pump jacks and you hear the roar of, of diesel trucks. It's very hard anymore in America to get anywhere that is not compromised by industrial noise. And okay, we get used to it and we tune it out the way you would if you lived under a, a flight path at an airport. But it that doesn't mean it doesn't affect us. It doesn't mean it doesn't disturb our capacity to be tranquil. I think we really need to pay 
more attention to this. It's, it's hard for me to believe that in the 21st century we can't do mufflers better than we're doing. Uh, but we don't hear them because we're in the car, not outside of it. But when you're outside of it trying to walk, you just think, wow, is this a noisy world. Uh, I'm, I'm with you completely, and I'm not going to go there because I could rant on and on and on. But I, I do want to back up just a little bit. When you were talking about Jefferson and his gardens, how he was growing to supply food for his own table, and then you said, and his guests. I'm not certain that everybody understands the burden that Jefferson suffered after his presidency and his retirement at Monticello, not just in having to answer endless correspondence, but also the uninvited, often uninvited, guests that arrived and what was expected of him. Well, Jefferson was by now a famous man, even a world historical figure, and people made the pilgrimage from all over the place. And at this time, there were very few hotels, and people would turn up, and they would expect, whether they knew the, the homeowner or not, that at least their horses would be taken care of while they were there. And that meant feed and watering and grooming and so on. But also, they often expected to be kept overnight or for many nights, sometimes weeks, even months. And so Jefferson's daughter, Martha, who was essentially his hostess, for most of his life, and particularly in his retirement, once lamented that she had had to find beds for 50 overnight guests. And these are not like a reunion from the College of William and Mary or a reunion of the signers of the Declaration of Independence. These are just people, some of them known to Jefferson, others not, who would uh, assume that he would provide hospitality. And it was part of the Virginia or Southern Code of Hospitality to provide. Jefferson could not say no. So this did not bankrupt him. He was capable of bankrupting himself without any help from others. But it did make him more interested in having his second home at Poplar Forest, which was about 90 miles away. And it was so remote that fewer people came there. And so he would sort of decamp from Monticello and go for a month or two months, a couple of times a year down to today's Lynchburg, to Poplar Forest. And there he would have relative less disruption of his daily routine. You know, he was a creature of habit. He did the same thing every day of his life. He was not somebody who lived spontaneously. He had a rage for order, second to none. It disturbed him when he had to abandon his reading or his, his writing or whatever project he happened to be on to entertain guests. But once he realized, oh, Dolly and James Madison are here, they're spending three weeks, he, of course, would put down whatever he was doing and serve as an exquisite and gracious host. Sir, we need to take a short break from this conversation. When we return, I would like to talk to you a bit about the weather. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. Again this week, we are speaking with the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, the acclaimed author and humanities scholar, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, and I'm your host, David Swenson. And sir, when we took our break, I said I had a, well, maybe a comment, maybe a question about the weather, but I wanted to say that a couple of weeks ago, we spoke about the severity of drought in the upper Great Plains. And I, for one, you know, was feeling a bit sorry for ourselves and our neighbors because of how difficult it is. But we neglected to mention the thousands of citizens that are facing the threat of wildfires. And I didn't want that to pass by without recognizing that. My heart just goes out to these folks. Well, of course. So that's not really a factor in North Dakota. We're the most treeless of all states. We had some grass fires earlier this year, and I'm frankly surprised we haven't had more. And the Dixie Fire in California is now the second largest fire in California's recorded history. It probably will become the largest fire before long. Uh, Something's happening out there. So A, Forests need to burn, and we've delayed the burns so long that when they do burn, they burn hot and wide. Uh, We need to really rethink how to do selective burning to clear out some of the dead timber that's in our national forests. It's a conflagration waiting to happen. B, it may be global climate change. Uh, The new norm appears to be longer growing seasons, hotter summers, milder winters, and that has, among other things, enabled the the western pine beetle, to flourish because you need a hard freeze to have any hope of killing them off through the winter. And so they're they're having several broods, several egg layings per year now. And so they have taken over whole swaths of the western forests. And that means more dead trees, uh, which are more likely to burn. I was in the Salmon River country floating and we saw serious fires, but the white pines, the yellow pines that were there, survived because it has to be a very, very, very large fire to kill off the giant trees of the forest. The next element, C, everyone I talk to hopes that this is an El Nino effect, that we're in some kind of a a cycle, that this is just a dry period and that next year or the year after, uh, Lake Mead and Lake Powell will refill and there will be adequate rain and, uh, and we can all calm down a little bit about this and the forest will get a chance to breathe and regenerate themselves and to and to make their immune system stronger against fire. But it's not clear that this will happen. We may be entering truly a new norm. And even if it's a natural cycle norm, what if it lasted decades? What if it lasted hundreds of years? And I guess finally I would say D, it is at least possible, David, that we will see a conflagration fire. In other words, that the entire American West will start to burn, that the fires will be out of control in so many places that they can't be handled even minimally. And it's almost impossible to think that that could happen, but it could. We could be reaching the point where there would be a catastrophic fire in the forest country of the American West, and it would be one of the most extraordinary environmental disasters in American history. Let's hope that that does not happen, but it could. And then just finally, I'll say about our lament. Yes, we lament everyone who's disrupted by these fires, whether it's smoke in your eyes or canceled recreational events, threats to your town or threats to your home. But it is also the case, David, that we have allowed the building of homes, including McMansions, in our national forests. And when this happens, 
when there's a home either adjacent to a national forest or within a national forest, and the fire comes, then our firefighters, of course, have no alternative but to try to put out those fires. And that means that we, we give a lot of our fire attention to suppressing fires in places that really do need to burn. And this enormously complicates the work of the firefighting community. And there's not much to be done about it. It is what it is. But if these were forests that had no human homes in them, from cabins to McMansions, managing the fires in the American West would be dramatically easier than it now is. I, along with you, I hope that this is cyclical and it's a short cycle. But we should remember that the Dust Bowl in the 1930s lasted 11 years, and that's, you know, that's by national weather standards. Ten inches of rain or less in an area, and you're defined as a desert. As long as we're going back to the Dust Bowl, one of my favorite Woody Guthrie songs, he, well, he rewrote a uh, song by the Carter family called Sowing on the Mountain, and his, his verse is, uh, God gave Noah the rainbow sign. Ain't gonna be water, but fire next time. It 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 is this year, boy. <laughs> it's a great song. Yeah, it really is. A, a brilliant writer. But we'll move on to another letter, if we might, sir. Of course. This one comes from Scott Major, and he thanks us for answering a question that he sent uh, about the presidential inauguration back in January. Says he always appreciates your perspectives and historical insight. He is a middle school counselor in Colorado, and as we, he says, as we start to emerge from this pandemic, I'm excited to be able to lead some school travel opportunities. Um, he has a group of about 20 students signed up so far to go to Washington, D.C., Williamsburg, and Monticello. Anyway, he wants to know some suggestions uh, about where he could go and what he should see, how to make the most of their visit to Monticello and Williamsburg next summer. He does say he was really sorry to find out that Pat Brodowski had retired because he was... I'm sure she can be brought out of retirement to meet that bus somewhere. But but yes, yeah, so he should, of course, go to Monticello, and Monticello will make a big deal out of this. They, they specialize in tour groups. You know, Mount Vernon is really important as an alternative because you see two very different presidents and two very different ways of organizing uh, a rural plantation. So those are within a couple of hours of each other. Um, Madison's Montpelier has been really wonderfully restored in the last few years and is finally um, uh, looks more or less the way it would have looked in the time of James Madison. So that's certainly worth doing. Williamsburg probably, I'm sure, has package arrangements for school groups of this sort. I won't suggest wineries since this is uh, middle school students, uh, but uh, there are some things that relate to uh, the American West, including Lewis and Clark. There's a Lewis and Clark Interpretive Center uh, in Charlottesville. So, I mean, these are really easy suggestions, but I I love it that he wants to do this. Uh, it, it's, a, it's a big undertaking, you know, being a I don't mean any irreverence, but being a counselor for people in middle school, that's a critical moment in the lives of young people. That's when you're transitioning from the nine-year-old who loves dinosaurs to the 13-year-old who hates life. And it's really important that this be done by people with great patience and love and understanding and, and commitment to the struggles that we all went through at that age. And 
Um, I, I deeply admire what he's doing. I couldn't do it myself. I don't think you could either. I'm not certain I could. I, I, I he, you know, he, he, the last line of his letter is that he, he wanted to hear from an expert uh, on what things might make a day trip to Monticello unique and especially memorable. Now, I've only been to Monticello once, and I will never forget it. Uh, driving up in the—there's a, uh, a small museum. I believe it's still there that you—when you come to the entrance. Yes. And um, you, you must go through that. Uh, that actually um, was inspiration for the very first Thomas Jefferson Hour I ever semi-permanently hosted, which was about technology— because there were all of these items and artifacts of Jefferson's technology, as sunglasses and uh, surveyors' chains. You, you recall his his ivory sheets on his notebook made of ivory sheets that he wrote with a pencil on, and yeah, so his bifocals and you know, all the gimcracks and minor inventions and accoutrements of, of Jefferson's life are brilliantly displayed in that um, in that interpretive center entrance. It's changed a little since your time there, but. Um, but only in ways that are even um, richer in, in their introduction to the great man. Well, I, I, and I'm certain, too, that, as you say, Monticello uh, looks at these school groups with, uh, I would hope, affection and interest and uh, makes certain that their, their tours there are, are well handled. And you have a chance to wander the gardens, which are magnificent. Uh, and the gardeners there will will serve as as guides and docents. The flower gardens, especially on the west side of Monticello, are world class. Uh, the lawn is such that you can run around and I, I play frisbee on it if if you have that option. Um, it's a it's a beautiful place in every way. And of course, Monticello leads the world in uh, in interpretive sophistication, and they have embraced under the last two directors. Uh, the question of race and slavery in a in a really extraordinary and proactive way, and I think that's uh, essential now in any future tour of Williamsburg, Mount Vernon, uh, Monticello, or any other place that was at one time a working slave plantation. Finally, we got a uh, a question from an anonymous listener, but uh, I, I want to read it to you. It's actually about Calvin Coolidge who in his speech on the 150th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence, uh, Coolidge said, Thomas Jefferson, who had acknowledged that his best ideas of democracy had been secured at church meetings. Do, do you know where Coolidge got this from? Is that accurate? No. Coolidge was distantly related to Jefferson by marriage. So one of Jefferson's granddaughters married a Coolidge and moved to Boston. Uh, no, uh, there's so many uh, ideas and quotations attributed to Jefferson, uh, and so far as I know, that is not one of them. Jefferson took his ideas from nature with a capital N by observing it, and from books of the Enlightenment, like Montesquieu's The Spirit of the Laws, or uh, Adam Smith's uh, Wealth of Nations. Uh, Jefferson was bookish. And he was an occasional churchgoer, but he went more as a sense of social obligation uh, and conformity than he went as a believer. He was not, so far as we can tell, an actual Christian believer, if by Christian we mean 
Jesus was the Christ, uh, died, was buried, rose bodily to heaven on the third day. Uh, that Jefferson rejected, or at least uh, viewed with enormous skepticism. So I don't think that Jefferson learned his precepts in church, although I'm sure he would say, sort of along the lines of the book, everything I, I, I learned, I learned in kindergarten, that, that these basic little precepts of love thy neighbor as thyself, forgive thy enemies, turn the other cheek, love God with all your heart, um, the meek shall inherit the earth, those, those principles uh, of Jesus um, not very widely practiced in our time, uh, would have struck Jefferson as, as not just uh, extraordinary, but extraordinary because they reflect natural law. In other words, love thy neighbor as thyself really means grant agency to every other person in the world, including people you don't particularly like. But you have to grant them agency. You have to respect them. You have to accept their legitimacy as other human beings with other points of view. So many of Jefferson's adult principles, because he believed so so strongly in natural law, would have been based on the same sorts of principles that Jesus uh, apparently adumbrated long, long ago at the beginning of, of, of modern Western civilization. We do have time for one more. This one comes from Brad Moore. Actually, it's addressed to Mr. Jefferson, but I'd like your take on it. He asks, would you please discuss your relationship with John Quincy Adams, the two of you were close <laughs> when you were minister to France. Did your relationship continue, or did it suffer when you had a falling out with his father? Excellent question. Uh, perfectly stated. The answer is uh, it never was very strong. Although John Adams late in the correspondence said to Jefferson, you know, you was as much a father to my son John as I was, but I think that was kind of a throwaway sentence. Uh, Jefferson mentored John Quincy Adams. He mentored anyone he could get his hands on. But, you know, putting books in front of them and asking them Socratic questions and urging them to, to learn languages and to read widely and so on. Um, but Jefferson and John Adams had such a hard time getting along between, say, 1790 and 1812 that it, it really hurt uh, the relationship, and as is so often the case, the father, John Adams, was able to forgive Jefferson more quickly than the son. The son, John Quincy Adams, never quite forgave Jefferson for the ways that Jefferson um, fought back, let's say, against uh, the Adams and the Washington administrations and used underhanded tricks, according to the, the Adams. And in fact, when... Jefferson was president, John Adams, John Quincy Adams was a senator, and he was at the White House for a number of dinners. Jefferson was famous for these dinners. And at one, Jefferson said that he, when he was in Paris that it had been so cold that the Seine froze over and people were skating on the Seine. And John Quincy Adams went home to his diary and said, you know, that never happened. Jefferson tells tall stories. You, 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 you can't always believe Jefferson. And then when Jefferson said that he learned Spanish in 19 days while sailing from Boston to England and France, Adams said, no, he didn't. That didn't happen. He, this is Jefferson. He likes to, he, he tells whoppers. Then Jefferson dies, and his, his grandson, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, publishes three volumes of Jefferson's select correspondence. John Quincy Adams read them and recorded in his diary over and over and over again how much he disliked Jefferson, how duplicitous he found him, how annoying he was, how unfair he was to his father, and so on. He had a grudging respect for Jefferson, and he was, oddly, a Jeffersonian. 
voted for the Louisiana Purchase, for example. But he just never quite forgave Jefferson for not seeing John Adams' greatness. Very good, sir. As always, I thank you for a, a fun and enlightening conversation. I've enjoyed it very much. Uh, before we say goodbye for the week, I know I think it's this week you begin your course on uh, the Aeneid. Virgil's Aeneid. I've been reading and rereading it in several translations. It's it's mostly forgotten today, David. But at one time, it was the most important book outside the Bible in the history of Western civilization from around 100 A.D. until around 1700. It was one of the two or three or four most important books in Western Civ, read by everybody in Latin if they could, in translation if they must. Today we have marvelous translations, I'm using those, and that course starts, and then I'm working on the new Constitution course. The new Constitution course will be in November. Um, it's been so widely demanded uh, to return, but I'm gonna pitch it in a slightly different way this time. Then there are the winter retreats out at Loxaw Lodge on Dickens and Lewis and Clark in winter. And most important, uh, there's still a few places for the John Steinbeck tour of California with Russ Eagle and me in March of 2022. So lots going on. I so appreciate everyone who comes to these. It's great to see them out on the trail and to put faces with listeners. And I appreciate all the correspondence we get. Urge people to buy my book, um, The Language of Cottonwoods, but also uh, the Edward S. Curtis biography, Short Nights of the Shadow Catcher, The Epic Life and immortal photographs of Edward Curtis by none other than New York Times reporter and columnist Timothy Egan. We'll see you all next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826. And this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.